Uh, well, good morning. Uh, yes, thank you guys for joining us online this morning. Um, really enjoying worshiping with the team here, and we can feel the presence of God, and it's been really good, and I hope you're engaging and feeling the Lord as well. Um, there's no distance for the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, so anyway, thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. I want to remind you, please, if you haven't already done so, uh, please just drop a like on this post or uh, share it on your timeline and put something in the comments so that we can say hi to you. You know, when we don't come together for worship, it's easy to lose track of people we love, right? And uh, so please put something in the comments and it just reminds us that we love you and that you love us. So uh, please do that. You know, when we do these, when we do these online services, I imagine uh, most of you watching in your comfy pajamas, uh, drinking some, you know, amazing coffee or tea. Uh, maybe you're covered in your weighted blanket. <laughs> you know, after this week of political garbage, I think we all may need a weighted blanket. <laughs> uh, you know. In fact, I say we just take another week of Christmas vacation. How's that sound? <laughs> Let's just pull out all the decorations for one more week and we can sit and watch It's a Wonderful Life and feel all warm and fuzzy inside again. Man, that's, that's what I would love to do. But, you know, seriously, uh, like many of you, I, um, I'm hurt, I'm hurting, I'm disgusted uh, by the weeks of this event or the event of this week. Um, I'm disgusted by the events in the Capitol building, and I'm uh, just as much as I was disgusted, you know, this summer by the riots and the destruction and the burning of the cities um, this summer. Our political system has suffered um, even more fracture after what we saw this past week, and it reminds me once again how our fallen fallible human systems when they're not under the lordship of Jesus will eventually self-destruct. Now, does that mean that we as Christians should abandon these faulty systems? Absolutely not. In fact, that is partially why we have the mess that we do today. Christians decades ago abandoned most spheres of society and left those places to the influence of humanistic thinkers. So now, more than ever, we need God-fearing men and women to rise up in our political system, in our educational system, in business, in media, in the arts, and occupy those spheres of influence with godly biblical wisdom. I am grieving over the events of this week, and I'm praying for our nation, and I am praying for our nation's leaders. But I wanna remind us of my message a few weeks ago about hope. We must keep our hope on Jesus. We must filter our thoughts, our thinking through hope in Jesus. And today I want to look at a passage of scripture that I hope 
will encourage us and challenge us in our thinking and in our hearts. Today, I want to talk about trusting the Word who is God. And the passage I want to look at is in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, before I dive into this passage, I need you to understand some things about John's gospel. Because it's not like the other three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. And synoptic just means uh, taking the same point of view. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic because they contain many of the same stories. John is not the same. And here are a few reasons why. First of all, John's gospel does not use parables. You may have not have realized that. John's gospel is unique in that it contains none of the parables that are characteristic of the synoptic gospels. There are no parables about the kingdom of God. And so uh, illustrations like Jesus the great shepherd and Jesus the vine, those are the closest thing we get to parables in the book of John. Another difference is that the stories that we do find in John, they are grand and impressive stories. All the conversations that Jesus has with others in the, uh, in the book of John are longer and they're more personal. You know, like the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in chapter 3, or uh, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Something else is that when uh, Jesus is casting out demons, he, 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 it's not small demons that he's, he's uh, contending with. No, it's the, only, it's the overthrow of Satan himself, right? Now, where it says, now will the ruler of this uh, world be cast out in chapter 12, verse 3. And when it comes to healing diseases, it's not just everyday diseases. No, it's the paralytic that he heals has been uh, lame for 38 years. And the blind man uh, healed in John was blind even from birth, which is in chapter 9. And then the one story of a resurrection in John was not done to someone who had just recently uh, passed away like the widow's son in uh, Luke's gospel. No, the one resurrection that Jesus does is to a body that's been dead for four days and it's rotting. Lazarus, right? Chapter 11. Something else that's unique about John's gospel is that when Jesus speaks, he doesn't just say, amen, I tell you, like he does in the other gospels. No, in John, he consistently says a double amen and amen. So John's gospel is a big, go big or go home gospel, right? John is, is, is writing this big and impressive message about Jesus. He's pulling out all of the big stuff. And so the divinity of Jesus is one of the main goals that John wants to convince his readers of. That's why he pulls out all of the, these enormous miracles. That's why he goes so big in his telling of, this, of his story of Jesus. And really, 
when you read the Gospels, you basically, you've got three options to think about Jesus, according to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote, yes, he wrote Narnia, um, but he was also an amazing apologist. And an apologist is someone who defends the truth of Christianity. And so C.S. Lewis said that when you hear the claims of Jesus, you must either believe that he is a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. So John's go big or go home gospel is set to prove that Jesus is God in human form. And so in order to convince his readers that Jesus is divine, John pulls out the big and impressive miracles and shows a decisive and an in-command Jesus. And when we have that in mind, then we begin to understand uh, why uh, John starts his gospel the way he does. Now, there's a term that we use to describe the first 18 verses of John. These first 18 verses are called the prologue. Now, I'm sure some of you are huge Star, Star Wars fans like me, like I especially was as a kid. Um, who remembers at the beginning of every movie where all those words are scrolling up, right? That's the prologue. That's a prologue to Star Wars. So a prologue is like the introduction to the story. And so John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is the scrolling prologue to the epic story that John is about to tell concerning Jesus. So let's just jump into John chapter 1, and I want to read verses 1 through 3. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, when you see those words, in the beginning, what does that remind you of? Well, it should remind you of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the ancient world, biblical books did not have their own titles, but they were known for their opening phrase of the book. So the first book of the Bible was not known as Genesis like it is to us. It was known as In the Beginning. So John is probably aware that he himself is, he is writing scripture. You know, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already in circulation by the time John wrote his, and they were already functioning as scripture. So it was, you know, I'm sure it was, uh, he might expect that the same thing would happen with his gospel. So uh, he's thinking that, or he at least is uh, mimicking Scripture with this phrase. So John is taking us back to the beginning of human history and beyond. Now, let's notice some things. Notice that Genesis begins with in the beginning. John begins 
or in the beginning, God. And then John begins with, in the beginning was the word. Now, the Greek term for word is logos. And he uses that word to take the place of the Hebrew word for God, which is Elohim. So when John makes this comparison, he's the, in the beginning, the word, in the beginning, God. He's going to make four statements that Jesus is God. Four go big or go home claims within the first verse alone. And here's what they are. Number one, Jesus is eternally preexistent. In the beginning was the word. In other words, there was never a time when Christ did not exist because the word was, in the Greek, is in the imperfect tense, which means was continuing. In fact, the entire first verse has this sense of was continuing. So if we paraphrase this first verse, it would read as, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually with God. In other words, Jesus always was wasing. <laughs> That's bad English, I know. But that's precisely it. Jesus Christ is pre-existent. He always was continuing. And so if you're like me, that thinking makes your brain kind of hurt. <laughs> I mean, our minds try to look back until time disappears and our thoughts collapse in exhaustion. But this is the first and great big thought about the divinity and the greatness of Jesus. Now, the second thing. Jesus is eternally in relationship. So next we have John. He says, and the word was with God. Again, literally, the word was continually toward God. So the Father and the Son, they were continually face to face. And the preposition with has this idea of nearness along with a sense of movement toward God. So that means that there has always existed the most deepest equality and intimacy in the Holy Trinity. Now, I know it's hard to imagine as we think of Jesus as uh, always having continued without a beginning and without an end. It's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our mind around that he's constantly always been in perfect, intimate, joyous intimacy with the Father. But this is the stuff that our worship is made of. This is why we worship him and not ourselves. This is why we worship him and not anything in this world. He was eternally in relationship. Next, John wants us to know that Jesus is eternally God. The final phrase of verse 1, John adds, and the word was God. And the exact meaning of that 
the word was God in essence, and it means he's in essence and in character God. He was God in every way. Even though he was a separate person from God the Father. And so the phrase perfectly supports uh, Jesus' separate, his, his separate identity while also stating at the same time that he is God. And this was his continuing identity from all of eternity. He was God constantly. The simple sentence of verse 1 is probably the most compact and powerful theological statement in all of Scripture. Jesus was always existing from all eternity as God in perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the eternal Christ. And then the fourth thing out of these three verses that John wants us to know is that Jesus is eternally creator. Again, finally, Jesus is the creator of the universe. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The fact of Christ is that he is creator. It is constantly seen throughout the New Testament. Let me share some scriptures Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then there's 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. There are, if you've ever studied astronomy, there are about a hundred billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Now Einstein, he believed that um, we have scanned with our largest telescopes only about one billionth of theoretical space. Now if that's true, that there are 
then that means there are possibly 10 octillion stars in space. Now, a 10 octillion, 10 octillion is a 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And if it's that many, then Jesus created every one of them. Not only is he the creator of this entire expansive large universe, but Jesus is also the creator of the inner universe of even the Adam. That scripture in Colossians explains to us that Jesus holds the Adam and its inner and the outer universe together. In him, all things hold together. I read a story about a man named Charles Steinmetz. Uh, he was a mechanical genius, and he was a friend of Henry Ford. And Charles believed that he could build a motor in his mind. And if it broke down, he could fix it in his mind. So when he designed it and he actually built it, it ran with absolute precision. Now, one day on the assembly line in uh, Ford's plant, it broke down. And none of uh, Henry Ford's people, none of them could fix it. And so they called in Steinmetz. And so Steinmetz came in and he tinkered around for a few minutes. Uh, Then he flicked on the switch and the whole thing started running again. A few days later, uh, Ford gets a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. And Ford writes back to Charlie and he says, Charlie, don't you think your bill's a little high for just a little tinkering? And so Steinmetz uh, sent back a revised bill and he said, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. I want you to think about everything we're seeing right now in America. Everything seems to be spinning out of control. So I want to ask you a question. If we can trust Jesus, the logos, Jesus, the word who is God, to hold everything in the universe together, Why do we not trust him with our nation? Is he really in charge of things we see and even the things we can't see? I mean, can we agree that all of these enormous claims that John is making here, can we believe these enormous things that John is saying about Jesus? And can we trust the one who holds the very fabric of the universe together? I believe the answer is we can trust such a God with everything. Because he is creator. He knows just what his creation and our nation and his people need. Only Jesus 
truly and totally knows where the tinkering should be done in our lives to keep us in perfect running order. So will we trust this great big God with our lives and our nation? Christ always knows which screw to tighten or which belt to loosen, which kind of fuel will be the most beneficial because He is our Creator. And if He is holding it all together, then my question is, is are you resting in Him? I know for myself, Resting can be a struggle. I spend so many hours in a day trying to fix things. I want to fix broken relationships. I want to fix broken ideas. I want to fix broken hearts. I want to fix broken systems. And in all my fixing, I sometimes forget that I am just an apprentice. I'm just a student to the true master builder. And when I forget that I am, uh, to borrow from Star Wars, just a Padawan to the master Jedi Jesus, when I forget that that's the case, I end up overstepping my responsibilities. And when that happens, I stop resting in Him. At that point, I am now striving and I am not living like I believe John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So let me ask you, have you entrusted your life to him? Or are you still trying to fix yourself? You know, considering the greatness of Christ, when we think about the greatness of Jesus, surrender is the only thing that makes any sense at all. So what is God asking you to surrender right now is it fear is it anger confusion maybe it's hopelessness why don't you ask him i'm going to give you a moment to ask just ask him right now what does he want you to surrender to him right now Jesus can be trusted with every part of your life, even even when you think you have trusted him in the past and it didn't turn out like you expected it. You know, disappointment does not mean that the word who was at the beginning is any less capable of turning what the enemy meant for evil into something that can be for good. 
You know, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want you to know right now is the moment. Right now is the time. If you have never, ever asked Jesus to be your Savior, ask Him into your heart right now. You don't have to pray a fancy prayer. You just need to talk to Him and say, I want you and I want to surrender my life to you. You confess your sin to Him right now. Confess Him. Tell Him everything that you can think of, every sin, and then tell Him, I'm sorry, forgive me. And if you'll do that, then ask him, I want the Holy Spirit. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to experience new life. Do that right now if you've never done it. You need him now more than ever. We all need him now more than ever. And if you have been a Christian for a while and you're exhausted because you're still trying to fix everything, stop. Maybe your disappointments have allowed you to stray away from your relationship with God. Stop striving and humble yourself. Humble your heart and trust the eternally preexistent relational creator God. Trust him with your heart again. He knows just where to work in your life. Today is the day to let him back in. The word, the logos who is God, he is calling us. Hebrews 3.15 says, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You know, in John's gospel, when, when you read the whole gospel, there is a strong emphasis on hearing the words of Jesus. In the prologue of John's gospel, John uses the term word, again, which is the Greek word logos. He uses that as a title for Jesus. And when you read the gospel of John, you will notice that Jesus' speech occupies much larger blocks of text as compared to the other three gospels. You'll also notice that Jesus' miracles in John do not take place at his, by his touch. They take place at his command. Over and over and over, we see the value of hearing the word of Jesus being stated explicitly all throughout the gospel. Let me show you. I'm going to buzz through a bunch because we need this in our heart. John 2, 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John 3, 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. John 4, 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John 4, 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? John 4, 41, many more believed because of his word. 
John 5.24, truly, truly, there's that double again. Truly, truly, I say to you, I say whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If he does not come in, uh, he does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6, 68, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 7, 16, Jesus said to them, my teaching is not my own. It is him who sent me. John 7, 46, the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. John 8, 26, I have much to say to you about and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John 8, 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide where? In my word, and you are truly, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. John 10, 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. It is obvious and evident that John is placed in extraordinary focus and value on hearing the words of Jesus. And that means it is our duty as humans and as followers of Christ to listen to Jesus. And listening to Jesus produces blessing in our lives and one day will ultimately end in eternal salvation. When I think of the world in which we live, it's clear that people are looking for a diagnosis of their condition and the possibilities of restoration. There are countless voices providing messages that promise to alleviate the struggle of life or the questions that are troubling us. We hear political and economic voices arguing that if we reallocate or reorganize or restructure, uh, we will then build the sort of world where fairness and tolerance uh, win the day. Other voices are uh, more deeply personal, uh, arguing that the problem we have is not a sociological one, but a human one. And that it's the human soul that is in need of repair and renewal. And, and if we will just provide the right education or the right therapy or the right vision of our neighbor, then everything is going to be made right. Well, most of those voices, most of those messages are secular. And these prophets of our day offer these enticing solutions that appear desirable and useful, but their their voices cannot replace the voice. The voice that John 1.1 introduces. The prologue to John is not about a message that offers hope. No, the prologue is about the message who is God that is our only hope. It's not about an idea, 
John's prologue is about a person. And when we read that the Word became flesh, it tells us that God is intent on communicating with us, not about mere concepts. He is intent on communicating about Himself. The Word became flesh tells us that the one who is the message is accessible and not hidden away just for uh, mystics or scholars. But he lived in this world. He was touched and he was heard by many. The Word became flesh tells us that the man Jesus was no mere mortal. He was not just uh, an inspired carpenter or a model human or a really good guy. Jesus was God himself, taking on the clothing of humanity, embracing it fully and eternally, walking in it, speaking through it, and delivering the reality of God to the world in a manner never done ever before. This prologue tells us that something definitive has happened in time. Something objective and absolute. A marker has been placed in human history and all humanity is now being called to mark time and advance by that stake in the ground. It's ultimately the cross of Christ. The times we live in, they may seem dark, But we have the eternal, pre-existent, relational, creator word who is God. And he is holding it all together. And he will continue to hold this thing together. He will continue to hold you together and me together if we will surrender our lives. And he will hold us until the day he returns. I have a prayer I want us to pray together. I want us to pray a prayer for unwavering hope. And so if you're at home, would you mind standing up with me as a way to activate your heart and your faith? And uh, we're going to read this prayer. We're going to pray this prayer together. I just, again, I want you to just engage this eternal God who loves you and is so personal and he cares about your feelings and he cares about your heart. He cares about your life. Remember, this is who we are praying to. We're not just babbling words. We're not just saying stuff to say stuff. We're speaking to God, our Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. So I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just pray it out loud. Say this with me. Are you ready? Three, two, one, go. Father God, in a world that is ever-changing and in a society that has all but rejected the truth of your word, I thank you that you are our never-changing Savior who knows the end from the beginning and has the universe in the palm of his hand. Develop in me an unwavering trust in the hope that is set before me, knowing that in Christ I have already received your gift of eternal life by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, my Lord.
May I learn more and more of your divine character and perfect attributes. For the more I know you, the more I trust you. And the more I trust you, the more I come to love you. Develop in me an unwavering hope in your promises, knowing that despite the evil and wickedness that seems to be suffocating all that is good and pure, your plans and purposes for mankind will one day be brought to fruition. On that day, Christ will be all in all, and the whole world will be brought into submission under his feet as he rules and reigns on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. May I hope in him unswervingly and live my life to his praise and glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you, Father. We love you that we can trust this word who is God. We thank you that our hearts are changing, our lives are changing, though the world seems out of control. You have it all in control, God, and we trust you today, and we love you. Thank you, church, for joining us online. God bless you guys. Uh, Please be praying for one another. Pray for us. Pray for America. Pray for our, our nation's leadership. Pray for godly men and women to rise up in every sphere of society, especially our political one, that we can heal and we can have God's, God's plan and purpose done in our nation. We love you. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.